Good morning. It is good to be together again uh, for church. And as we get going, uh, <clears throat> totally as a side note, um, I remember when uh, this whole COVID shutdown started and there were lots of pastors on all sorts of places, but Twitter is where I happened to follow a bunch of them who were trying to figure out what does it look like uh, to run church through this time? What do we do? How does it, how do things change? And one pastor had said, and there was kind of consensus generally, I feel like, that it's probably not a bad thing for sermons to be a little bit shorter than they were previously. So uh, one pastor had tweeted out that his plan had been, he typically preaches a 33-minute sermon, and now he was going to preach 22-minute sermons. And it was about four weeks in, and he said, and so far, every single one of my sermons has been 33 minutes. So there is uh, obviously something ingrained in the way, the rhythm of things. It was very difficult for him to leave that. And for me, too, I thought, oh, man, I'll try and uh, preach a little bit shorter messages. You know, it's just the nature of things, right? Kind of talking to you through a camera like this. The engagement level, it just isn't the same. Um, that's, that's not on my end or your end. That's just the nature of the medium is that it's different than being in person. And so I wanted to keep things a little bit shorter. And what's happened is, is I've been preaching some of the longest sermons uh, that I've ever preached. Um, and that's partially because of the stuff that we're getting into. These tough questions require a bit of digging through and working through. But my goal is to keep things a little bit shorter. So you guys are my accountability partners. Now I'm saying as of today, I want to uh, shrink down my sermons just a little bit while we're doing things over Facebook like this. So I'm going to try and keep it to, you know, around 20, 25 minutes today. Uh, I'll say that at the beginning. You guys can hold me accountable. Uh, and yeah, part of the reason that uh, sermon likes have been creeping up is because there is much to dig into with these tough questions. Uh, these things are easy to talk about for a long period of time because there's always different angles or different things to talk about. And of course, these things, these questions, by their nature, tend not to be black and white sort of definitive answers. They tend to be sort of layers and shades and and levels of things that, that really have to be dealt with with some level of nuance and subtlety because it's not just a simple thing to dig into. Today, though, we have the benefit of digging into a question where we've already laid some groundwork in some ways. We may not have realized that we were doing it, but but sort of by happy accident, what's happened is, is that these last three Sundays have, have ended up working really, really well together and kind of building on each other. So so two weeks ago, Darren talked about hell, about the theology of hell. And again, if you haven't had a chance to listen to that, I encourage you to do it. Uh, great message on, on what he believes about hell. He was kind of specific about going, here are some things that I think are concrete truth. Uh, here are some tendencies that I've noted throughout scripture that point us in a direction. And then here are some of my personal opinions about this. So he walked us through that in a, in a powerful way. And then last Sunday, I talked about assurance of salvation, which of course ties in, right? The, our understanding or theology of hell is going to impact our assurance of salvation understanding. And today what we're going to talk about is evangelism. And this is in many ways the third part of a trilogy of these things that are really interconnected and interrelated. So if you haven't heard either of those other two sessions, uh, those two sermons that we've done, go ahead and take a listen to those because they inform some of what we're talking about today. And this is going to, in some ways, build on what we've been talking about over the past few weeks because what we understand about hell and what we understand about assurance of salvation is of course going to impact how we think about evangelism which is our topic for today 
and evangelism is tricky because there's a lot of tension uh, about this topic. There's a lot of tension in the church about this topic. There's a lot of disagreement between different groups about how to go about this. And I imagine that for many of you, there's actually tension in your own hearts that just bringing up the word evangelism creates a level of uh, discomfort or anxiety or unsureness in you because it's a word that carries some baggage. Uh, you think of people holding those uh, repent or burn type signs. You think of door-to-door um, -door kind of knocking on doors and, and sort of forcing conversations on strangers and all these sorts of things. Um, and, and you wouldn't be the only ones. Christians surveyed by a, a group called the Barna Group uh, put out a survey uh, in regards to evangelism. And it was an interesting thing. I included this in our bulletin. Uh, almost unanimously agree, and I hope uh, Christians would generally, that the world needs more Jesus, that Jesus is good for people to have, that those who have him could use more of him, that those who don't have him desperately need to hear about him. But then more than half of people also said that they believed that evangelism was, um, I believe the word was unethical or immoral. Uh, so the, 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 the world needs more Jesus, but it's wrong for us to share about Jesus. And so then how do we reconcile that and how do we work with that? And certainly, I think some of that tension probably exists for some of us, the sense in which we want to share, but we're not sure how, and we feel like it's not the right thing to kind of try and force ourselves on people. Uh, and this is something that I've wrestled with over the years. What does evangelism look like in today's day and age? Because, of course, the world has changed a lot in the past, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. It's kind of been on this trajectory. And so how does it work uh, for my generation? And how does it work for our current culture? And how does it work as Christianity more and more um, takes steps out of sort of the assumed normal, becomes less and less normative, and becomes more and more... Um, pushed to the sidelines, becomes more and more uh, or less and less understood uh, by general society, less and less appreciated by general society. This is the move that it's taken. We're kind of stepping back into uh, the life of the early church in some ways where Christianity was more of an underground thing. We're not there yet, but it's moving in that direction. So how do we work uh, with that? There's a temptation. Uh, one of my professors at SBC would constantly talk about the risk of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. So there is a temptation or a risk to just give up and say, I'm done with evangelism, right? I, I, I see what doesn't work about it. I see how it doesn't fit into our society. I see examples of very negative or hateful or aggressive versions of it. I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to be associated with that. I don't want to do that. And so I'm just not going to evangelize. I'm stepping away from it completely. I'll just live my life. I'll go to church. I'll associate with other believers uh, and hopefully, you know, if we're lucky, maybe people are going to figure it out, that they've got something cool going on over there and eventually people will come join us and that would be great. But I am not going out and engaging with, starting conversation with, uh, aggressively trying to connect with the people around us. And that's certainly how I've lived my life over different seasons, basically stepping away from that piece going, I don't understand how to work with this, so I'm just kind of leaving that part alone. And yet, this tension remains because just like the people in the study that we talked about and just like I hope you listening to this believe the world desperately needs Jesus that Jesus is the root uh, that Jesus is the key to, to solving the root of the problems that we as society have that that he is something that is desperately desperately needed in order for us to live as we are called to live um, and if that weren't enough 
the the Bible itself is explicitly clear that evangelism isn't just a good thing for some people here and there, but it's actually a key calling uh, for all of us. It's Jesus' last words to his disciples. Go and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Or we see it in Acts as well, Acts 1 verse 8. Um, Jesus says that when the Holy Spirit comes on us, as he has, right, for us that believe the Holy Spirit is with us, when that happens, then what follows is we are going to be God's witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Um, and and uh, more than just a couple of isolated verses, the, the evangelism is baked into God's plan throughout Scripture. We see God's vision for what the world is going to look like, for what evangelism is going to look like. Already in Genesis 12, very, very early, this covenant with Abraham. Uh, these are the verses that Joe read, that, that Abraham and his descendants were called to be uh, a blessing, right? They were blessed by God, um, but a part of that blessing was that they were then to go out and be a blessing to the rest of the earth. God says many, many times throughout Genesis and going forward that Israel is going to be um, the people through whom the earth is blessed. And if you hear that and you go, good, I'm off the hook, I'm not I'm not Jewish, I'm not an Israelite, uh, then the, the second set of verses that Joel read from Galatians kind of correct that, right? Um, those that have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So the calling is put right back onto us. Uh, Paul says that we are children of Abraham through entering into this new covenant with Jesus. Peter says in another way, he repurposes some Old Testament language. He kind of makes use of some Old Testament imagery to call us Christians to be a chosen people and a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession to proclaim the virtues of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So we are a priesthood. Uh, priests being those who mediate between people and God. We are called to be priests. We are called to bridge that gap, called by God and chosen in order to proclaim his virtues, the praises of him who called us out of darkness and into his wonderful light. So these two things are true, right? I don't think I actually need to argue these too hard. I don't think these are controversial statements. But the first is that the world needs Jesus and the second is, is that we are called, all of us, by virtue of the life that we have stepped into, the kingdom we have stepped into, the relationship that we have stepped into, part of our vocation, part of our calling is to be messengers, is to spread that gospel. So living a life that attracts other people into the kingdom of God, that's not a sort of a secondary extra to our lives as Christians. It's, a, it's an essential core part of why we are saved. We're called to evangelize. And I can feel... Some of you cringe at that thought. And I can feel some of you say, Amen, Pastor Jesse. It has been far too long since we've talked about this. Finally, we are, are, are kind of jumping on this train. Um, there's going to be a whole range of, of history with this, of personal experience with this. And I think there are probably also significant generational differences with this in terms of how we think about evangelism and what it means. The question that spurred this on um, the submitted question, I'll, I'll read it for you now just so you have a bit of context for sort of 
the initial uh, angle that we are coming at this with. So this is the question. I live my faith openly in front of non-believing friends, and yet it doesn't seem to make them want to be followers of Jesus. Why not? What do I need to do differently to have an impact on them in such a powerful way that they will want to change their life? So in, in that question, I'm hearing some of this frustration, this tension that we talked about. I want to stay away. I don't want to be aggressive or pushy. I want to step on toes. So I'm living my life as a Christian in hopes that that attracts them. It's, it's that famous quote from St. Francis of Assisi, uh, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. And yet nothing seems to change. So what I want to do today is look at the motivation behind evangelism. Um, the responsibility that we do have to evangelize and the responsibilities that we don't have, what we what we aren't called to pick up or take on ourselves. Uh, and then the method of evangelism. So those three things, the motivation behind it, the responsibility that we have, and the method, how we actually go about doing this, uh, just in broad strokes. So first, let's look at the motivation. So the motivation for evangelism, uh, put simply, isn't fear, which it so often has been in the past, but love. The motivation for evangelism is not fear, but love. It's an interesting thing. I've, I've been chatting about hell with people after uh, Darren's message, and I've noticed this uh, generally over the years when these sorts of conversations happen. If a conversation about hell ever starts to open up the possibility that there may be more hope than we've traditionally thought about, or more grace, or more love, or a bigger salvation than, than we've sort of grown up thinking about, then one of the first questions that gets asked is, well, why evangelize? Well, then why be a missionary? Why spend all this time and energy and effort um, to teach people, to reach people about Jesus um, if, if, we're not, if we're not so concrete on the fact that they're heading to hell uh, forever and eternity? Uh, and that betrays, no matter what your theology is on hell is, uh, regardless of your theology of hell, that uh, betrays something that I think we've gotten very twisted over the years because the message of salvation, the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom is not primarily about rescuing from hell. That is not the primary motivation of that message. It is about entering in to a new life with God. And when people are called into that kingdom, called into that new life, it's about accepting a gift rather than avoiding a punishment. So when we look at Acts, it would be an interesting thing. If you want to dig into this a little bit, a really, really fascinating thing would be to go through Acts and to highlight each of the moments in which uh, somebody in the book, a believer, interacts with a non-believer, either Jew or Gentile, um, and, and sort of engages in conversation about what it means to be a Christian or what it means to enter the kingdom of God. It happens 15 or 16 times throughout the books of Acts, or the book of Acts, which is kind of this the story of the early church and the earliest missionaries and, and their experiences. So looking at those, um, what, one of the things that we see is that not once is hell used as a motivating factor for conversion. Not once is hell brought up as, as the reason somebody should consider becoming a Christian or entering into the kingdom. Uh, and Paul, uh, in all of his writings, uh, never talks about hell. He doesn't talk about hell once. Um, and, and when Jesus announces his ministry, uh, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus enters into a synagogue and sort of uh, takes the floor 
and announces uh, the beginning of his ministry, ticks a lot of people off by doing it. Um, but he reads from the scriptures, and this is what he says. This is how he chooses to launch um, talking about the kingdom of God in the book of Luke. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. So what's that good news? He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So when Jesus introduces the gospel, the good news, uh, he's not, he doesn't introduce it as a rescue from future punishment or future judgment or hell. He speaks about freedom that is given and received now in this place, in this life. And so as we proclaim the good news in our lives, the motivation isn't, biblically speaking, I would argue the motivation shouldn't be about rescue from hell. That shouldn't be our primary focus. That's something that was brought in after the Bible was written in, in, in other sort of efforts to evangelize. That's not the primary motive here. It is about freedom and new life and relationship with God now. Why do we evangelize? If hell's not the motivation, the motivation is that all around us, people are in pain and darkness and they're hurting and people are marginalized and they're oppressed and they're pushed aside. There are people who are going through a sort of hell here on earth as we speak. And we have a God, uh, Jesus, who says, come to me all you who are weary and are burdened and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. The motivation is that uh, in an anxious and stressed out and dark world, we have a light and an anchor and a cornerstone and new life and blessing. And there can be nothing better than joining together in relationship with one who loved us and loves us and created us and died for us. So that is the motivation is inviting people into new life. It's not about escaping um, some threat. Uh, after our lives are over. So that's number one. Number two, the responsibility. The responsibility here is God's. It's not ours. It's not our responsibility uh, to make sure that people are saved. And in fact, we can't do anything about it one way or the other. So, of course, it's God's. I hear you say. Uh, but so much evangelism, I think, over the years, certainly in my own life, when I think about some of the times when I've evangelized or, 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 or pushed out or kind of had some of those conversations, uh, even if the conversations were good, often what happens is, is, is it's done out of a sense of guilt um, or, or a burden, kind of, if I don't have this conversation, then who will? If, if What if I make a mistake or I miss an opportunity or I skip out on a conversation or somebody ends up in hell because of me? What if somebody ends up in hell because of me? Because I didn't make the most of a situation. And I think many of us over the years uh, have felt like this, have had this feeling, have worried about missed opportunities, about the Holy Spirit nudges that we felt and didn't follow up on, about conversations that we didn't engage with, um, or doors that we didn't knock on, or people that we passed by, or co-workers that we never chatted with, and we've gone, could it be that I am going to be the reason, that I'm the reason that they didn't get saved? Did my unfaithfulness somehow cause them to stumble or to miss out? The interesting thing about this is that if I started talking the other way, um, you would immediately dismiss it. If, if, I, if you had a conversation with somebody or a relationship with somebody and they ended up becoming a Christian and I said, 
Congratulations. It's all about you. You are the reason. You're the reason that they're saved. It was all on your strength. I think most of us would step back and go, no, 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 no. The, the, the glory goes to God. Uh, I just had a conversation. Only God can change a heart. Um, only God can make that conversion. It, it has nothing to do with me. I was just faithful in the moment to this thing. But God is the one uh, who should be praised for this. And uh, But when it's in the negative then we start going through these what-ifs and then we start feeling this guilt when we, um, uh, like the question asker a little bit, the person who asked this question, have friends or colleagues or people that we see and we're wondering what, what could we be doing differently or how could we be speaking or talking or acting differently uh, or what sort of a stumbling block are we presenting, then it's much easier to begin to take the blame onto ourselves but that is not how God calls us to live. Um, there's that famous passage in 1 Corinthians, beautiful passage that spells out um, this principle perfectly for us, right? Paul reminds us, he says, I planted the seed, uh, Paul has watered it, but God makes it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. I like that Paul was never afraid uh, to mix metaphors. It makes me feel better sometimes about my own writing. He says, you're co-workers with God and you're also a field and you're also a building. Um, but I think the point is completely clear here, which is that God is the one who is making the seed grow. We can we can do things, we can be faithful, but God is the one ultimately who's in control. And that goes for the positive and it goes uh, for the negative. We don't, uh, we don't take credit for the victories and neither do we take credit for the uh, for the places where uh, it feels like our efforts were in vain. Because A, we don't know what God's doing behind the scenes. We don't know what part of the journey that we are. We don't know what God is working in this person's life. Um, and B, we're just co-workers or a field or a building. We are we are uh, partnering with God in this. Uh, Rick Richardson talks about evangelism and he has a question um, he talks. He asks a question that I think reframes how we think of this in a beautiful way that helps us to put down the responsibility of evangelism and instead enter into this joy of partnering with the Holy Spirit in this calling. So this is what he says. He says, what if we just rediscovered the role and reality of the Holy Spirit? What if we saw ourselves as collaborators rather than activists, looking for clues about where God is already at work? Evangelism could become an adventure in detection rather than a burden of making it all happen. So it's an interesting way to reframe it. And the question maybe is, how would your day look different? How would your life look different? How would these relationships look different? If instead of it being a burden, uh, instead of it being something that you're worried about getting wrong, you simply kept your eyes open for where the Holy Spirit was already working uh, and partnered with God, uh, seek seeked that you would seek to be faithful to God in those things so first the motivating factor is love not fear second the responsibility is God's it isn't ours and third we approach this the method of this is curiosity not condescension so the third thing that we sometimes get wrong about evangelism is that is that what we can start to do is take very much an us versus them view, a, a, a detached view, an insider versus outsider thing where we have all the right answers, they have all wrong answers. And we have all the knowledge and they have ignorance. And 
It's simply our job just to tell them the truth over and over again and, and hope that it finally sinks in. That we're on a pedestal sort of throwing out breadcrumbs to the lost souls below. That we're kind of up here and they're down there and we sort of interact when we have to but but we're, we're 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 coming at it with all the right answers and they don't know anything and when we took a look last week at some of jesus's interactions and if there was ever somebody who could have come at things with that sort of a mentality it would be jesus who was god who did have all the right answers uh when we for the most part had wrong answers but if you look at his interactions with people uh one of the things that you might have noticed although we didn't get directly into it um last week when we kind of went over some of jesus's interactions and connections with people one of the things you might have noticed is that jesus asks a lot of questions well over a hundred times in fact in the gospels jesus questions somebody a group or a person and uh, questions are are important because one of the things that they do uh, just very practically is they give us insight into the spirit of the conversation into the spirit of the person that is coming to talk with us so someone's showing up and they're ready to pick a fight and sort of that happened with jesus a lot and it will happen with us sometimes if they're just ready to attack that's probably not the right place to bear our souls and try and enter into real and meaningful conversation but if somebody is coming with an honest desire to learn more and to engage that's different so jesus and the temple courts in Matthew 21 is approached by the chief priests and the elders that say, uh, they're, they're questioning Jesus and they say, who gave you this authority to say these things and to do these things, to do what you're doing? And Jesus could have just answered them. He's answered that question before. He's talked about this before. But instead what he does is he probes and he says, ah, I've got a question for you. If you answer me, I'll answer you. So Jesus' question is, John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven? Uh, or human origin. So there's lots of layers to that question. We don't have time to get into it. But the long and the short of it is, is that Jesus was, before he just jumped into a conversation, he was testing their intent. Are you coming here to attack? Or are you genuinely interested and willing to speak with me on these things, to engage? And if we are approached or asked questions, which is going to happen from time to time, if we're asked questions in person, even on social media, one of the best things that we can do is to is to try and begin a one-on-one -on -one conversation where we also then ask questions i'm curious why you say that or can you explain a little bit more about what you mean or where did you hear that where have you heard that before and maybe that shuts down the conversation immediately in which case there probably wasn't much point in pursuing or maybe it opens things up in which case as we go forward uh the phrase i've heard said is Never make a statement when a question will do the job. So, so as you enter into this conversation and continue, questions continue to be a great tool that we can use. Rather than trying to speak to somebody or lecture somebody or tell them, ask them about their side of things, help them to process things on their own. Um, enter into this true back and forth dialogue where you're honestly interested and curious in what the other person has to say. And you can begin to ask questions like, have you ever considered that? Or do you think it could be possible that? Or what would change about your life if? Or how does that fit in with what you believe about? Um, Greg Kokel, uh, in his book Tactics, so we watched this video series a few months ago in in adult Sunday school, Tactics uh, by Greg Kokel. He, he asks, or he says this about question asking rather. He says, my goal is modest. I want to put a stone in the person's shoe. I want to get him thinking. 
I want him to consider listening to Jesus first before dismissing him. If I can simply open that door, I've accomplished something important. So this concept that what we want to do is get people thinking. We want to create a little bit of friction in uh, in their lives, in their thinking, and make them go, oh, maybe things aren't quite the way that I thought they were, and give them a thought or something that's going to kind of rub, and it's going to kind of work and allow God um, to continue to uh, to get involved, to give them a to give them something to work with as uh, he, this person leaves that conversation. So we aren't trying necessarily to convert on the spot. Sometimes evangelism feels very much like it's about this sort of immediate thing where it's better if we haven't had a conversion, if we hadn't had a clear step uh, in one direction or another, then it's then it's somehow a lost cause. But when we engage with conversation, what we want to do is encourage thought and we want to encourage processing and seeing things from new angles and, and maybe an increased openness towards Jesus and towards um, things of God. Being genuinely curious people gets us away from that us versus you mentality towards a much more Christ-like model of us doing this together, of me and you discovering and learning alongside each other. It also means that there is no one-size-fits-all method to this uh, because you're dealing with human beings. Um, you're dealing with people who have their own experiences, their own history, um, and who, whether we can see it or not, God has already been working on uh, before we got there. And God is going to keep on working afterward on connecting. So as we enter into that, um, it's about much more than a series of steps or a perfect sort of situation. But that curiosity is an important thing. Thinking of them as a real person who has real and valuable and interesting things to say. Um, and, and allowing that conversation to be led through questioning, through genuinely wanting to understand their side of things. So those are the three principles. We're motivated by love, not fear. We rely on God's strength, not our own. It's his responsibility. And we enter into this with curiosity, not condescension. But at the core of it all is this. God has called us to be evangelists, not to call down hellfire or brimstone, not to stand on a street corner and yell at strangers, but to live in a way that invites people into this new kingdom that we are a part of, to offer Jesus to the people around us, um, and if you're lost on how to do that or how to begin, just remember that the pressure's off. It's all about what God is doing. He has called you to this, and we believe and, and we know because of Scripture that he has also given us his Holy Spirit, and he has equipped us for this thing. And so if you don't feel equipped, uh, God wants to give you the tools to work with. And so what I want to encourage you to do is to pray and to spend some time with God uh, and to and to ask him for this. If this is something that you really want, if you feel convicted about um, the need to evangelize, the need to connect with and show love to and invite people into this life, if you feel like that's something you're not doing enough of, if you feel like it's something that you've stayed away from for too long, um, then ask God. It's as simple as that. If you really want it, ask for it. Pray for it every morning. Ask God to open your eyes to situations around you, to people and to relationships where you can speak or show a little bit of Jesus. And that's my challenge for this week in the bulletin, right? Is, is to take time to talk with God in an intentional way about how you can partner with him uh, in being salt and light in our world. Bring the light of Jesus to those who desperately need him because the world does need more Jesus. Amen.